So our passage tonight that we're going to be in is the first punch in this section. So chapter 8, verse 27, is Mark's first jolt of these mistaken expectations about the Messiah. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. Uh, to catch you up a little bit again on some context, I know we talked about it last Sunday morning a little bit. Um, Mark in chapter 8, so Mark is 16 chapters long. In chapter 8, um, Mark is entering the second half of his gospel here. Chapters 8 through 10 are really this turning point in the whole gospel. It launches you forward into the second half, chapter 8, um, where Mark kind of shifts his approach a little bit. So chapters 1 through 7, that's where we were in chapter, chapter 5 last week. Um, last Sunday morning, chapters one through seven, again, are all these cycles of miracles, and there's some teaching as well that's mixed in there, but it's all there as, as Mark records it to prove to all of us reading it that Jesus is the Son of God. He really is the Messiah. Chapters eight through ten, then, are Mark beginning to unravel these mistaken expectations that have crept in on the Messiah and the kingdom of God. So he begins to unravel these expectations that the disciples had, the followers of Jesus had, even the, the whole of the children of Israel had for the Messiah that Mark tries to turn on its head a little bit. Uh, and really the question is, throughout this section of chapters 8 through 10, what does it mean to follow Jesus the Messiah? Um, really as his true disciple. Jesus begins to show his disciples what true discipleship really is and that it's maybe a little bit different than what they have in their minds. Um, and how does, so what, what does it mean to follow Jesus the Messiah as his true disciple and how does that clash with our idea of what a disciple is? So our passage tonight that we're going to be in is the first punch in this section. So chapter 8, verse 27, is Mark's first jolt of these mistaken expectations about the Messiah. And essentially, what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to ask the disciples a question. Just as they're traveling down the road, he asks them a question, and that question is going to lead into Jesus teaching two things. So that question is kind of the springboard for Jesus to begin to teach two things to his disciples. And those two things, essentially, um, Jesus is saying, or, or teaching, we do not shape who he is. We do not shape who he is. And the second thing is that Jesus the Messiah shapes who we are. We don't shape him, he shapes us. Um, in our house right now, Eden is learning her shapes. And so we have like this little cube thing um, where it has all these little plastic shapes and little holes that the shapes go in in the top. And so Eden does this thing, I'll, I'll give her a circle. She knows her circles fairly well. 
And so she'll, I'll say, circle, where does it go? And she says, circle. And she, you know, takes it and she puts it into the circle. Uh, and then, I know my child is just amazingly smart. Uh, and then, then I give her the square. And I say, square, and she doesn't quite get square yet. But then she takes it and she hovers it over the circle. And she goes, circle? And she tries to put it in and kind of cram it through the circle a little bit. And I say, honey, no, that, that doesn't work that way. You've got to put the square in the square hole. And so we move it over, but then she moves it to the square. And then she moves it to the triangle hole and she says, circle? And, and it's like, no, it, it doesn't work that way. You can't take these shapes and put them in these holes because it just doesn't fit. They, they're not shaped that way. They don't fit in these holes. Um, essentially, what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples here is we do not shape who, who he is as the Messiah. We can sometimes get these expectations and mold Jesus into our own personal Jesus that maybe has some things to do with what the scriptures say and maybe some of them are our own uh, reflections and our own uh, uh, introspections into who he is. We do not shape who Jesus is, but Jesus ultimately shapes who we are he is the mold that we then fit into. And that's what, we're, what Jesus is trying to teach tonight. So uh, let's, let's pray, and we will look at verse 27 tonight. Father, we thank you for this time in your word this evening. I pray that you would bless it. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the Son of God and a Jesus who is worth following and who is worth being shaped by. Um, Father, I, I pray for your help and wisdom tonight, and we thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 8, if you'd follow along with me in verse 27, we're going to read down through verse 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So we see Jesus' initial question here, right? Which is, who do people say that I am? So this is somewhat typical, even in Mark, where they're, they're traveling somewhere. In this case, they're traveling to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus, while they're walking, they're talking, right? This is part of discipleship, is it's life on life. And so as the disciples are traveling with Jesus, Jesus is going to use this as a teaching moment. And so he poses to them a question, hey, who do people say that I am? And so what are some of the disciples' answers? Can somebody tell me what the first one was? Okay, John the Baptist. So they say, all right, 
Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Um, this idea that Jesus is John the Baptist makes a little bit of sense because their ministries were really closely tied together. And if you didn't know who Jesus was, maybe people would have said, oh, he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. And actually, that's something that people say. If you go back with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 14, this is actually what Herod thinks. Um, So Mark chapter 6, verse 14, uh, it says, King Herod heard of it. Um, Basically, King Herod hears about Jesus going around healing people, casting out demons, all of these things, immense authority and power. And so verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And at, at that point, uh, we get like this, another Mark and Sandwich, as I told you kind of last week, where we get this, this episode of how John the Baptist was beheaded in Mark. But it's really interesting that this is something that Herod believes that Jesus is actually kind of empowered by John the Baptist. So this is something that people generally would have believed at this point. Okay, you notice even in that passage in Mark chapter 6, what was the second answer that was given, both here and by the disciples after Jesus' question? was Elijah, okay? Uh, This is possible in Jewish thinking, um, Jewish teaching. They believed that Elijah was going to be raised again as a prophet. You can, you can see this in Malachi chapter 4. If you want to turn back there quickly, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 um, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this is part of the thinking, okay? This, this is possible. Because when we read this, they're like, man, these people, like, what do you think he's John the Baptist? They think he's Elijah? It was possible within their theology that God really said he was going to bring Elijah back. Um, this prophet Elijah. So they think maybe he's Elijah. Maybe this is the fulfillment of what Malachi the prophet told us. And then others would say, right, the third option is he's one of the other prophets. Um, Jesus himself, even in the book of Mark, refers to himself as a prophet. Mark chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus talks about being a prophet in his own hometown. Um, And there were other prophets that were prophesied to come who were like Moses. So this is something that maybe other people in Jesus' day would see Jesus as one of another line of prophets of God or perhaps even the prophet that was to come who was like Moses. But basically, what this question does, and it's inherent in the question itself, is Jesus is asking them, what, does, what is the general consensus about me? What do people on the outside say who I am? 
Jesus wanted to get the answers of those who didn't follow him, right? Those who were looking in from the outside like Herod or the people of his court or his servants or the general public in Israel. Jesus specifically asked them for the the opinion of those in the outside looking in. Um, And if you went around, like downtown Elkhart, we went tonight and started going around asking, hey, who is Jesus? You might get a lot of different kinds of answers, right? Because most likely they're people who don't follow him. They're people who have heard some things about him, heard he's a good person or, you know, have had a church background, maybe a negative church background and would say very negative things about Jesus or, or whatever it may be. But then what Jesus does is he asks for the disciples' perspective, right? So they give him all the answers of kind of the general consensus, which are all incorrect. This is not who Jesus is. And so Jesus then asks for the disciples' perspectives, right? He says, um, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies with the correct answer, And this is the major point of Mark's gospel. When you go to Mark chapter one, verse one, Mark lays out his purpose for writing the book. And he says, this is Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Um, That's what this gospel is about. And so when Peter gives this answer, it's like like if Mark is is saying like, finally somebody got it right? Somebody understands. Somebody's seen the light of day where Jesus is the Christ. And Peter makes this statement about Jesus that is true, that is accurate, that is who he is. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah to come and deliver God's people. Everything leading up to this point has been to show that Jesus is the Christ. And with this statement then, Mark shifts the approach of his gospel. Because in a sense, as getting to chapter 8 and this statement, it's proven. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah to come. And then Mark begins to unravel the expectations of this Messiah a little bit. Right? Because... The celebration doesn't really last that long, right? Um, we see that Jesus immediately strictly charges them to tell no one about him. This is, this is common in the book, Gospel of Mark. Jesus does this often when he does a miracle or he teaches his disciples something and they, they get the glimpse, they get the idea he's the Messiah. Jesus silences them in the sense that it is not his time yet. Okay, there, there is a certain time to come And spreading all of these things about him that he's the Messiah was maybe going to bring undue attention on him, especially from religious leaders um, and things like that. So he tells his disciples, don't tell anyone about him, about this statement. And then Jesus begins to teach really who he is, what it means to be the Messiah. What is the Messiah's mission. Jesus gives this really plain explanation here of his suffering, his rejection by the religious leaders, by the children of Israel, his death, burial, and resurrection. And essentially, Jesus tells the disciples the gospel flat out that the mission of the Messiah 
has, is, is accomplished when Jesus suffers, is rejected, he dies, is buried, and, is, and right, raises again, rises again from the grave. And that word um, you see there in verse 32, he says this plainly. I love how Mark says this. It means like Jesus didn't use any symbolism here. He didn't use metaphor. Um, he didn't kind of like paint a picture with a parable. It's like he just flat out told them, um, the Messiah, I am going to die. I'm going to, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die, be buried, and I'm going to rise again after three days. Plain and simple, just like that. And as you could assume, that kind of floors the disciples a little bit because they had certain expectations as to who the Messiah was. Um, this explanation when Jesus tells the disciples this, it clashes with Peter's understanding of the Messiah. It, in a sense, actually, it, al it almost offends Peter to the point where he takes Jesus aside and he begins to then explain to Jesus the Messiah who the Messiah is, okay? And he, he notice it even says, um, Peter took him aside, verse 32, and began to rebuke him correct him, okay? Can you imagine doing that to Jesus? But this is all because Peter has these expectations that, that the Jews would have had at this time that the Messiah is going to be this king. He's from the line of David. He's going to free the nation of Israel. He's going to crush the enemies of Israel. He's going to establish this kingdom, God's kingdom of righteousness and justice that's centered in Jerusalem. And so it became a, a very... Uh, militaristic, a, a conquering mindset for the Jewish people, especially being enslaved by empire after empire. And so their view of the Messiah, what, Jesus, what, what Peter would have seen him as the Messiah is, what do you, whoa, back up. What do you mean you're going to suffer? What do you mean you're going to die? And what do you mean that you're going to be buried and rise again after three days? That's not the Messiah, I, I know. That's not the Messiah I've come to believe. And this causes Peter to take Jesus aside and rebuke him, essentially teaching Jesus about who he is, right? And you see the irony in that. And, I think, and Mark wants you to see the irony in that because Jesus then, same word, verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter in front of them. And very strong language here. Get behind me, Satan, the accuser, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We often try to shape Jesus and put him into our own box. We get expectations not from the Bible about who he may be. And we begin to form and to mold this image of Jesus that isn't who he said he is. And you see this all over the world. Because every single person in our world, every, um, every, every single person, every single culture, culture has to do something with Jesus. They have to put him somewhere in some category, Right? Everybody is faced with that question. And so that's why different religions around the world, they're, they're created because they misidentify who Jesus is. Oh, they say, well, Jesus, 
this person from Nazareth was just a really great teacher of wisdom, right? Um, kind of like a Buddha figure, right? Or, or a Gandhi figure, um, where he's just this great expounder of wisdom. Or they say, well, Jesus is just kind of this cynic philosopher where he, he sits back and he kind of, you know, in his rhetoric begins to spin and, and, and put the world kind of upside down a little bit by, by his wisdom, and he's promoting equality for everyone here, right? So maybe he's just some philosopher. Maybe Jesus is actually just some crazy prophet who is announcing doom to everyone. Or maybe Jesus is a political revolutionary trying to overthrow the government. Or Jesus is just some great prophet of Allah, second to Muhammad, as the Muslims would believe. Or Jesus is really just some sort of enlightened mystic who brings this great spiritual knowledge about the cosmos and, and it's a way to kind of union with this divine force, right? A lot of like new age and uh, mysticism today. Hinduism, Buddhism, ancient Gnostics. Or some might say, misidentify Jesus and say, well, he's just the brother of Satan. He's the physical son of God and Mary like the Mormons would believe. Or he's just an exalted created being, kind of like uh, on the same level with Michael the archangel as Jehovah's Witnesses would believe. Right, so you, you get everyone looking at Jesus and fitting him into their mold. And they say, this is who he is. But that's not from his word. But even though you might, again, that's kind of even if we were looking at the general consensus in our world of who Jesus is, we might get answers just like that. But even like Peter, we can see Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one to come who would deliver us, yet we put him even in our own box. And we say, as is, uh, there's a lot of, of this as part of the social gospel and evangelicalism today. Jesus is just a proclaimer of social justice and care for the poor. That is who he is. He is the Messiah, but all he's, his mission is to overthrow these societal um, underpinnings, right, that oppress people. Or, He's the Messiah, but Jesus is just here to really make us personally happy and financially successful. The prosperity gospel. Or Jesus is the Messiah, but he proclaims justice on the wicked. So we should carry that out on who we think is wicked. And you can look a lot back into church history and see that that was some of the thinking. A Jesus of our own making. Or... Jesus is kind of just my safety net. He's my get-out-of-jail-free card so that I can do what I want and I don't have to face the ultimate consequences for it. It runs rampant through modern evangelicalism. And all of these miss the point of why Jesus says he came. He came to suffer and to die and to rise again for you and for me. That was his mission that is who he is. And anything else that we try and, and fit or pile on to who he is that isn't in his word is not right. And we're doing the exact same thing that Peter's doing here. 
Even in following Jesus, we can miss his purpose and mission. Like the disciples are the people in Jesus' day. And Jesus' purpose in his own words is to suffer and to die for you and for me. So we need, we need to be careful in saying or believing things about Jesus that he is not. We do not shape him. He shapes us. And that's what we begin to see Jesus teach next. Look at with me at verse 34. It says, in calling the crowd to him, sorry, I haven't been keeping up with my PowerPoint here. We do not shape who Jesus is. Jesus shapes who we are. Look with me at verse 34. Um, so Jesus rebukes Peter, right? You're, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, who God's Messiah is. You're, it's kind of your man-made Messiah, So verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, notice he he makes what he's about to teach very public. He's not hiding what he's about to teach. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That is some intense teaching from Jesus. Imagine being in the crowd that Jesus calls to gather together because he's been with his disciples, teaching about who he is as the Messiah, and then brings other people in on this conversation. Saying things like, deny yourself. Take up your cross to follow me. If you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. How does anyone gain the whole world, but then they'd forfeit their soul? And essentially, Jesus is saying, if you are going to be my followers, if you're going to be my disciples, this is what it looks like. I've just told you, as the Messiah, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. And if you are my disciples, you follow in that path. Jesus tells them of the cost of discipleship. He says to deny yourself. This is fundamentally opposite of our culture, even in most cases Christian, kind of this sub-Christian culture, right, that you see, this consumerism Christian culture, um, this kind of t-shirt bumper sticker Christian culture, right? Our culture would say, do what makes you happy. It's your right to dot, dot, dot. Follow your heart, right? All of these phrases that I know many of you have heard over and over and over again. Because even it's that culture of our world has crept into Christian circles, where we even hear phrases like that coming from Christian leaders, phrases like that coming from from people that we know and love and who have the same faith as us. 
Christian culture says, uh, Christian culture is a, is a comfortable Christianity. All about Christian liberty and doing what you want to do, what you have the right to do as a believer in Jesus Christ. And in following Jesus, he says, you should count on the fact that it's going to be uncomfortable. You should count on the fact that you're going to need to deny yourself, not follow your heart, not do whatever makes you happy. You're going to have to deny yourself if you're my follower. The cost of discipleship is to deny yourself. The cost of discipleship is to take up your cross. Notice that this is an active verb. It's an active motion that Jesus is telling them they need to do. The image of the cross is interesting that Jesus uses here because he's told them, at least in Mark up to this point, that he's going to die, but he hasn't said how. So this image of a cross comes up to his hearers of crucifixion, of a criminal's death, of torment and torture. And Jesus says, you take up that cross. For these people, you didn't take up your cross. It was forced on you as a criminal. But what Jesus is saying here is, as my disciple, as a follower of me, you take up that cross. You are willingly suffering for my cause. Jesus expected his followers to willingly endure the worst for God's kingdom. And we see this in our world today, outside of for many of us are comfortable bubbles in the United States of America. We see people fighting for their faith, persecuted for their faith. And that's what Jesus was saying discipleship really is going to be like. So he gives the, the cost of discipleship here, and then he talks about the stakes of discipleship. What are the stakes? There are three things at stake here. Look at verse 35. It, one of the things at stake here is life and death are at stake. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Life and death is something we all wrestle with. It's one of the biggest questions on our mind. And Jesus says, if you don't get this, if you don't understand this, if this is not who you are as my follower, life and death are at stake. He says one of the other stakes is, is that it's, it's either everything or it's nothing. This is how much we need to understand this. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the entire world? Imagine if everything on this earth was un under your fingertips. You were in control. You had the power. You had all of the resources. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? So everything and nothing is at stake. And then Jesus says in verse 38, you're either with me or you're against me. And essentially Jesus kind of draws this very clear line in the sand. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, an adulterous and sinful generation that needs Jesus, that needs to hear about him, that needs to hear about the gospel and his saving work for them. If you're ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Jesus draws this very clear line in the sand. He makes it very clear that the message of the world and his message are very much opposed. He says, here's what it looks like to follow me. Jesus isn't hiding any of the difficult parts of being a Christian here. He means to weed out the ones that won't truly follow. This is something that happens all throughout Mark. Jesus says statements that are just jarring. He tells his disciples things that makes you question, like, should I be a disciple of this guy? All because he wants to lay out the reality of what this is. What you're getting yourself into, that it is the best decision you could ever make, but it's not one that is without any difficulty. Oftentimes, our profession of faith never translates to true belief. We must be shaped by Jesus in order to be considered one of his true followers. Um, it's something, the idea of even the, the sinner's prayer, I feel like has so often in our circles given kind of this false assurance of salvation right? Where if you say these words, right? This magical formula that you say that and you repeat after me, good to go, right? And I'm not saying if maybe that's how you came to Christ, that that's, that's not a legitimate way. But I would say for, for, the, for the one or, or that, that this was a reality for, that's how you came to faith. There's hundreds of others that are believing in a false assurance that I said some words, so I'm good. So I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus because I've gone to church for my whole life. I prayed the sinner's prayer. The message of many churches to sit today is you're saved because you prayed this prayer. The message of Jesus and the disciples is you're saved because of the fruit of your life shows it. It's clear, it's evident that you're a follower of him. It's so clear and Jesus wants to make that clear. He says it in plain words. He explains it so clearly to his disciples. He's not trying to hide anything, you know, behind the curtains of what Christianity, true Christianity is like. But there are great stakes to this. I wanted to close um, with a story. I told this to the teens, so maybe some of you will remember this, some of you may not. Um, how many of you have ever heard of a guy named John Allen Chow? Anybody? John Allen Chow. Nobody. Okay. Um, John um, was a missionary. Um, actually, not too many years ago, about five years ago. So pretty recent. Um, and he was a missionary to the Sentinelese people on North Sentinel Island in India. Anybody ever heard of the North Sentinel Island in India? Some of the teens are raising their hands, okay? Um, the North Sentinel Island in India, give you a little map here, um, but it's kind of hard to see. There is, I, I don't have my laser pointer, but I don't think it would work on the TV anyway. Kind of right in the middle, you see this little stretch of island right here. If I, everybody see that, kind of right in the middle of the ocean there, you have on your left, you have the continent of India 
and Sri Lanka below that. To the right, you have Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Philippines, right? All that over there. So that little stretch of island, that's not North Sentinel Island. That is. So tiny, tiny little island to the left of that long stretch of island, okay? That is the North Sentinel Island within the India borders. Um, it is an island that is completely isolated from the outside world. And when I say completely isolated, I mean that there's a chance that they may not know like what a horse is or, or that there's any kind of technological advancement in the world, period, okay? Like that's how much little contact they have with the outside world. And the main reason for that is because anybody who goes onto their shores is immediately killed. So John had come to Christ, um, I believe when I was reading his story, at, at maybe a youth rally at some point when he was like a later, mid or later teenager, comes to Christ, and not long after coming to Christ, um, feels the call to take the gospel to um, unreached people groups, Okay. Um, and as he was just doing some research, right, you know, just Google searching, you know, unreached people groups and things like that, he came across the North Sentinel Island. And so he begins to study up on it. He begins to look at it, begins to talk to people about it. And he begins to have this burden to go and bring these people the gospel who have barely ever seen or interacted with anybody from off of their island, let alone heard of Jesus, so John, he trains for years, okay? Um, once he kind of settles in on this decision um, where he, he, he's, he wants to try and be able to bring these people the gospel, he begins to train. So he trains physically um, because he, he knew that even the water sources that were there, you know, he, want, he wanted to get his body able to be used to that. Um, he wanted to train his body so that he was physically strong and capable to be able to live in an environment like a jungle like this. So he trains physically. He trains linguistically in some of the dialects that would be around so that he would have some aptitude to be able to communicate with these people rather than just doing like hand signals, right? He trains medically so that he has some sort of trade, some sort of gift that he can help them medically with any physical problems that they might have. And he trains biblically so that he can clearly present the gospel and, and knows about somewhat of their culture to relate Jesus into their culture. So he trains biblically for years. Um, and it comes time where he wants to go to the island. This is John. Uh, so because the entire island sits within uh, a protected zone patrolled by the Indian government, um, there was contact years ago, I believe in the 2000s, um, the aughts, uh, he, they, there was some attempt to contact these people by some researchers. And so like gifts were dropped around the island for days, right, so that they could kind of have some contact. And I think there was maybe some contact made but it went fairly poorly. And so the Indian government, for the sake of everyone's safety, for all of that, they have just locked. There is like a nautical perimeter around this island where no one is allowed to enter, okay? 
So it's illegal to approach from as far as six miles away, let alone visit it. Um, John pays five local fishermen, about 25,000 rupees, so it's about $350, to break the law and to take him in close to the island under the cover of darkness. They have this 30-foot-long wooden boat, right? And on November 15th, so this would have been in 2018, November 15th, um, John, right, they don't take him all the way up to the island. They take him within a distance that he can get out a foldable kayak, and he gets in, uh, so he assembles this kayak and heads ashore, only to be met with arrows and forced to retreat. So the next day, he paddles in again. And on November 17th, so there's maybe even a couple of days of this trial and error trying to get to the shore, the fishermen see the Sentinelese people dragging his apparently dead body along the beach. The world does not understand something like this. Because actually, one of his friends posted about his death and kind of gave his story and his burden for these people and all these things that were happening. And as, you know, a, a news story like this kind of blows up even on social media, right, there was all, peop- all kinds of people that began to post under it. Posts like, a martyr, question mark, question mark, question mark, more like an expletive who endangered people. Another one says, an arrogant, self-centered, naive, deluded, the list of adjectives that could be attributed to this guy are endless and none of them are complimentary. Or, trying to promote a false god to an ancient tribe and he gets killed, the irony of it. Our world does not understand sacrifice like this. That when Jesus calls people to go, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him, the world just looks at you and thinks you're absolutely insane, let alone maybe a dangerous person to society. Jim Elliott, who many of you probably know a little bit more, says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The world's value is save this life because that's all you're ever going to get. This is it. So do all you can with this life for you. Jesus' value that he presents to his disciples here is lose your life for my sake and for the gospel's. Because in that, you will truly find it. Now, I'm not saying that, that this means that you're going to be called to do something like what John did. Because that, that's not everybody's story. God doesn't put a burden like that on everybody's heart. But let me ask you, what are you willing to lay on the line for the sake of Jesus? And I have to ask myself that question too. Do we have a Jesus that is shaped by our own making so we can kind of sit back in this comfortable bubble of Christianity and of our faith where we never step outside and actually really sacrifice something for Jesus? We never actually have to deny ourselves anything. We never actually have to really actively take up a cross of suffering. What are you willing to lay on the line for the sake of Jesus? What's the difference 
between the Jesus that John followed and the Jesus that you follow. John's Jesus called him to deny himself, to take up his cross, and to go, to follow him, and to help others to follow him. Even if it meant something that really sounded crazy, Jesus shapes who we are. We do not shape who he is. He calls us to follow his path of suffering, of discomfort, of sacrifice, because that's what he did for you and for me.